This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Today, we are celebrating queer cinema and all the Spectrum's film explorers. I'm joined by Sammy Felchenfeld. How are you? I am good. How are you? I am good. It's been a little while since I've had you on. I know you've had much more interesting topics and people, but now it's my time to shine. <laughs> I cannot wait to see how you shoehorn Suicide Squad into this episode. I always find a way. <laughs> All right. Uh, on June 27th, it is Global Pride Day. And as we close out Pride Month, we figure it was the perfect time to discuss and celebrate our favorite queer films, uh, especially since there won't be any parades this year, which has me very disappointed. Before we start, I do want to acknowledge that I am a heterosexual cis male, so please note that I am hosting this show as an ally who loves getting to experience stories that cover a wide spectrum of lives and experiences. Um, and Sammy is here with me. Uh, and yeah, I am a uh, I am a queer man, but I am a white cis queer man. So uh, along the same lines, um, as an ally to the trans and and everyone community as best as I can. Um, definitely going to be speaking in some cases from my own perspective as, as being a, a very much a white presenting man and a cis man um, and how that representation has continued to exist and also is slowly making way for the other many, many, many faces of the LGBTQ plus community. But yeah, so we're just going to be a couple white people, um, cis people talking about diversity uh, in the queer community. So let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, we're following uh, the last episode was uh, me celebrating black cinema, which I, I took a backseat to that. So I figure it's only time for me to uh, jump in and start talking about queer cinema as well. That makes sense. <laughs> uh, but queer cinema is just about as old as cinema itself, with the first instance of homosexuality depicted on film back in 1895. Marlena Dietrich was an early talky global sex icon and her bisexuality was on display as early as 1930 in the film Morocco. Uh, eventually, homosexuality started to be depicted only in stereotypes with men cross-dressing or in drag while performing jobs and tasks normally considered to be women's work to show that they were not masculine men. As gay people eventually were characterized, unfortunately, as things like pervert, sadist, or just punchlines in movies made by straight men, queer cinema went underground into the art houses by people like Andy Warhol and Kenneth Anger. They began to make more daring and experimental films in the 60s and 70s. Eventually, queer stories would be used as filmmakers wanting to press the envelope about what middle American conservative values were espousing. By the time the 90s rolled around, there were plenty of prestige queer films made by some of the top directors in the world. For the most part, these were still directed and starring heterosexual people. As new queer cinema moved forward, studios and producers were finally greenlighting more films that were directed by, starring, and for gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered, and queer people. While there are still plenty of problematic depictions of queer people in media, there are also more stories than ever across a magnitude of genres and languages to tell the stories of people that have been too often marginalized by society in the film world. Today's show is a dedication to talking about LGBT and Q plus films. Before we begin, Sammy, would you be able to share any stories about maybe the, the, first, uh, the first queer films that you noticed or sought out for yourself? Uh, yeah, I guess it's... it's um growing up not sure of my own sexual orientation and identity 
um, every film was a queer film because I found the often the male characters attractive. Um, but the the earliest instances were any um, any appearances of kind of like stereotypically gay representation. So the gay bar scene in a movie um, or the the scene where the straight characters find themselves in, oh, this is this kind of movie store or this kind of bookstore or something like that. Um, a few come to mind, but the one anecdote I will share is Police Academy, which I did see when I was a little kid um, and only learned later in life that there's a scene, uh, a very brief scene that takes place at a gay bar called the Blue Oyster in the movie. Um, and it was actually one of the uh, ex- basically extras, but um, he's a bit more involved with my uncle um, in that scene. Uh, before he was even out to my grandparents, um, to his parents, he basically was, there's a brief scene where he's dancing with one of the characters from the movie. Um, and it's very, like, it's super over the top stereotypical uh, kind of version of what this kind of gay leather bar, quote unquote, would look like. But at the same time, um, even though there was the element of it being the butt of a joke, it was also sort of just in this movie. So there was a tiny bit of that visibility, but it does stand out primarily because of that very strange familial connection. I think my uncle is only in like bit parts in two other movies as well, as far as I know. Um, but so that, that definitely sticks out in my memory for sure. Wow. That's a, that's a great story. I, uh, I feel, I feel very lucky that I was raised in a manner that my first encounter with, with anyone in the queer community was such a, natural experience and was never questioned or judged or anything like that. Uh, early on when I was very young and when I first started getting into theater, my, my mother had taken me to see a performance. She was working as a secretary at a high school at the time. And, uh, it was directed by someone that she worked with, I think, or something like that or starred that. And afterwards I met this man, uh, who I later learned was a gay man. And he, I had talked to him about enjoying what he was doing or something like that. And he'd recommended an acting school uh, out in Oakville where I was living. And I got the chance to start taking acting classes. And my my teacher, a man named Yilmaz Mustafa, who is just known as Yo, uh, got introduced to him. And he had a partner at the time, now husband, because at the time uh, they couldn't legally get married. And they were in the process of adopting uh, three young children. And all this was just told to me so matter-of-factly, and I never questioned it. It was never questioned at home or anything like that. And I think it was just such a, a lovely, beautiful inter- introduction. I was I was pretty young. I must have been, I don't know, eight or nine, something like that. And then from then on, it was never an issue in my family and at home, and, I, and I'm so thankful for that. But as far as maybe movies where I first noticed that, obviously you know as a as a young boy when i was probably around 11 or 12 that's when i first started thinking girls weren't icky that they might be cute or things like that uh so it was probably a little bit later where i first started maybe noticing that not everyone really thought the same way i did it was probably movies like uh the bird cage or or rocky horror picture show or my own private idaho were probably the first depictions of of gay characters or or queer characters that i was able to actually notice and and see that there was people that were different than me, but it was obviously still a natural thing. And so I'm, I'm very lucky that I was able to, to have the experiences that I did. Yeah, I think, well, I think you also benefited from sort of a, um, a an upbringing that, that sort of allowed for that to happen. 
I won't say that that's not what happened for me, but I was very fearful about coming out and then learned after I did that it wouldn't have been so bad. But it's hard to know when you're when you, you don't see that you don't really see you hear things among your family that don't sound good. And there's things there's there's things that don't get shared and you don't really know what, what it's going to be like. So I, I remember my own private Idaho. My brother gave me that before I was I came out. I was like, you should, he said, you should watch this movie. It's really good. I'm like, okay. And then I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but I mean, it was also like, it's true. There's a, there's a few movies. I definitely saw the birdcage as a kid, but I don't think it clicked with me. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe I don't, I don't remember. Um, Rocky horror was definitely one of those things where I sort of was like, oh, I don't want anyone to know I've seen this movie, but then it turned out everybody had seen that movie. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's strange. I think it's, it's, it's hard for me to look back. I can more picture a pickup like being super into Schwarzenegger when I was like 12 in his like 80s and 90s action movies. But I didn't know why, because I don't like action movies, broadly speaking. And so sort of that, that kind of thing, like it was more just the, the finding things I was interested in, in movies that weren't about or ostensibly about anything queer. Are you okay with me asking at what age did you end up coming out? Um, Oh, I have to do math now. Uh, it was around, it would be around 15 years ago. So I would have been like 16, 17 at the time. Okay. I was out to my brothers a year before that. And like one friend since I was like 12 or 13, uh, who happened to like, when I came out to her, she also came out to me, which was hilarious. And we were the only people we were out to with each other for like, for each other for like three or four years at that point. And then, um, but then after that, it was sort of like out to pretty much everybody. Um, so it was sort of a, like, it, it was, there's, there's definitely a big difference being born in the late eighties and coming and growing up in the nineties to, to kids born 20 years later, where there just is more access to just about anything, you, not just about anything, but there's more access to what you want to see both on the big screen and on YouTube really as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting because like, you know, I'll watch I love classic Hollywood films. And so I'll watch them and I'll read like the IMDb trivia afterwards. And it'll be like a note and be like, oh, yes. in in the scene where the two male leads lock eyes, this was prohibited by the Hayes Code. But this was supposed to indicate that they had a sexual relationship. I was like, what? I completely missed that moment. Whereas now there's so much more content and availability of things where thankfully it's not uh censored in the same way that it was back in the you know from the 30s through the early 60s where we're oh kids yeah coming of age and everyone, have to deal with that everyone loves reading into things whether they're there or not just like just the fact that so many people have sort of become queer icons more just by by contextualizing than by anything actual which i don't think there's any problem with to be honest because for for the entire history of film, people have looked for ways to see themselves represented. So whether it's it's, it's there or whether it's there but hidden or whether it's not there at all, I think all of that is valid. Mm-hmm. I have to wonder if, if you know, me being a, a straight man, I probably would have missed a lot of the cues that were more embedded in a lot of films in the same way things like politics uh, are often deeply embedded in film where if you don't really know the the language or the what their you know the subtle hints are you probably are going to miss them completely yeah i i there have been moments where i'll watch out of the film and be like oh, walk out of the film and be like yeah this is totally like a like a homoerotic subtext maybe not necessarily a a, a homosexual subtext um, cause I think there is a difference for sure. But, um, 
and then the people I'll be with are like, I didn't, I didn't read that. Um, so like there's, there is sort of that, um, like, I think I picked up on cues. I picked on, I pick up on a lot more in reading, um, just as a side note. And we've talked about sci-fi a lot, but, but sci-fi from the fifties and sixties and its earlier days was very, very, very white cis male dominated, but you could, you could tell that they couldn't help, but, but get some things in there where they're like, they're not going to put people of color in the story, but you can bet that there's a little bit of gay. Um, and then other people are like, I don't read that. I was like, well, I do. And I say it's there. <laughs> <laughs> like it was interesting when I was doing a little bit of prep work for this, I was reading about, um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, where, uh, David Lee and the director considered that to be one of the, the earliest, biggest gay films because totally in the plot is, uh, Lawrence in, uh, Omar Sharif's character where they're supposedly lovers. I don't know if that's quite confirmed in the book or things like that, but, uh, I, I think back, I must've seen that movie three or four times now and, and I would never have registered that, but maybe someone that was more, uh, attuned to what they were trying to imply would be more aware of it. Yeah. I think it's just, uh... I don't, I don't know how long it's been since I've seen that movie, and I'm not 100% certain I was awake the whole time. Sorry, but um, really, long. I, I think that's I think that's the thing. It's time to watch it again. I think it that's the thing is sort of like, I mean, like um, Lord of the Rings is probably one of my favorite examples of the very very heavy overtones of um, of uh, Bilbo and Mary. Um, Frodo and Mary. Wow. Nerd card is going to be revoked. Um, and, uh, and well, really all the hobbits that the relationship is a little bit like all over the place, but like you can tell there's more going on. Um, Oh, Sam, see, I'm screwing it up. It's Pippin and Mary and Frodo and Sam. Frodo and Sam is uh, talked about all the time, especially the way it was played in the film. As I understand it on purpose, that Sam is very much in love with Frodo, but is not necessarily gay or even queer. Um, that, that there's just those other layers or levels of it too. And that's, I totally read into that. I remember seeing that when I was younger being like, Oh, this is, this is super obvious. Like this person just clearly cares a lot about this other person. And Frodo is just an oblivious idiot, which is the, the other semicolon after all the other subtitles of the movie is Frodo is an oblivious idiot. (laughs) Which I think maybe has to do with the fact of, you know, it's something we've known scientifically for a while, as far as like the Kinsey scale goes, that sexuality is a spectrum where not everyone is completely straight or completely queer. You kind of fall somewhere in the middle of not necessarily in the middle, but it's a spectrum. So you're, you're somewhere along there, uh, some more than others. And you watch some movies and there'll be some, you know, deeply personal connections between say two male leads or two female leads, but then, you know, they'll either be married or end up being with someone of the opposite sex later on or or things like that. And, and you just kind of, you know, maybe brush it off that it was just like intense friendship, but maybe it has to do with the fact that due to a spectrum of sexuality that maybe the, the main character liked both being with men and with women sort of thing. And everyone else. And everyone else. <laughs> yes, absolutely. As is often, often and sometimes, but not always the case. Yeah, so I think we're going to maybe talk about some of our, our favorite movies uh, across the, the queer spectrum. I 
feel free to correct me at any point if I if I say something out of turn or or incorrect. But uh, I figure we can do the kind same. Of, do the same for me because I don't have all the answers. <laughs> but yeah, I figure we can kind of go through you know lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, and then any queer. I'm sort of doing an umbrella of queer of if it's if it encompasses either multiple sexualities or it's not clearly defined. Uh, that's where it kind of falls for me in the queer plus section. However, that right. uh, however we want to interpret that, but uh, yeah, maybe let's let's start start talking off with some uh, some lesbian films that we we like. This was you know I, I had a bit of a tricky time trying to figure out everything. Where you know most if you're going by lists or things like that, what, everything is being characterized as just gay. So whether it's about female relationships, male relationships, transgender relationships, in between things like that. Uh, it would mostly have to, I'd have to sort through, uh, gay sections and then basically figure out how to divide it up from there. But, uh, if you want to start us off with maybe any, any lesbian films that you're a fan of or, or ones that, uh, you want to recommend, please go ahead. I can't believe it. I'm just so excited to be here. I'm in this dream place. This one comes highly recommended. What are you doing? Get out of the car. I will always jump off for Mulholland Drive, um, just because it was probably the first, the first film I ever saw that was blatantly, um, like not even just about a lesbian relationship, but also like, have you seen it? I have, yes, and I do like it on my list. Okay, I was gonna, I was gonna say, like, can I spoil this kind of movie? Is it even possible to? Um, it was not only explicitly about a lesbian relationship, but also about the desire for a lesbian relationship and sort of like uh, David Lynch is a very interesting guy, which we could talk at length about on its own. But I think that this really was carried by Naomi Watts' performance, not being queer herself, as I understand it. Um, but I do I do appreciate that this was sort of just like, no, this is this is part of what the story is about. It's not the whole story, but it is really integral to this character in both the, the like imagined and reality components of the story so that that one always jumps out to me and it's one that i've i kind of go back to uh just sort of as like a, they didn't really like looking back on this movie from nearly 20 years ago now yes it's about the relationship and it's about that that um that feel like that the sexual orientation aspect of it but it's not the main crux of the film as well no and i would have to say you know with the exception of some I, I guess I, uh, several films I want to talk about are specifically about uh, the the discovering of sexuality or relationships specifically. But there's also quite a few like Mulholland Drive, where just like any number of other movies, where there is a relationship subplot to it. Yeah, yeah. But as far as maybe ones where are specifically about relationships, things like uh, movies like Carol or um, The Kids Are All Right, which which isn't as much, but Carol is one that I really love where you've got Kate Blanchett and, and Rooney Mara uh, playing uh, an older woman and a younger woman, I believe in the 1950s. So you've got this like very uh, Norman Rockwell idyllic lifestyle going on where a married woman, a woman married to a man, uh, is having an affair with a younger woman and how the toll that sort of takes on them having to hide and conceal it due to the fear of being ostracized or being divorced, things like that, which on top of them being lesbian, they also still had to deal with 
a lot of the unfortunate um, sexism of the era that took a long time to sort of rectify itself. So a lot of movies that sort of deal with with that era of pre 1970s, even even afterwards, but but especially pre 1970s relationships of of same sex couples really had to be careful because it had more to do than just their own sexuality. It had to do with what was considered their roles in society. Yeah, and then I think it's just to add to that, it's also just a really good movie. (laughs) Which you don't always get when I think those stories are trying to be told. With the wrong lens, I think it would be um, a bit more like vilifying in a way. It's a movie that I feel like had could only have been made in the last decade and not 20, 30 years ago. No, I, I completely agree because it might have been maybe a little bit more voyeuristic if it was made uh, prior to that. It was directed by Todd Haynes, who is a, a gay man himself, uh, based on a novel. Uh, I can't remember who wrote the novel, but there was a, a, a wealth of source there going into it. And I think they were able to handle it very delicately. Yeah, I agree. Uh, an interesting, maybe like a, a sort of a different genre uh, for me, one that I really loved is The Handmaiden from a couple years ago, which is, I can't remember if it's Japanese or Korean at this point. I think it is a a Japanese film. No, it's a Korean film. It's about Japanese, Japanese occupied Korea. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm screwing this up, but there's like a whole lot of political subtext to it as well. Uh, and it's totally a crazy movie where if you if you have a bit of a weak stomach don't watch it but um because there is some some violence and gore in it but it, it's it's so wonderful because the movie basically plays out in one way and then halfway through the movie basically replays but from showing things just prior to the moment we, we witnessed or just afterwards or even a different angle of where the scene was shot and it just completely flips the entire story on its head and the way the the four leads and the two women that are, are the main characters in this uh have to do these performances of selling it one way but in reality when you add a layer of subtext to it their performance takes on a completely different level just blows my mind I also wanted to, to when you're thinking about, uh, it, it just reminded me thinking about movies that are sort of just like, it, okay, this is one of those movies I can't watch again, but it's Aniara, which was a um, Swedish sci-fi movie from a couple years ago. Um, and it was, uh, it's it's just really depressing. There's nothing else I can say about it. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler for anyone who wants to watch it. Um, but it, it is one of those things where it's sort of a, um, it's sort of a, like, here's characters. They happen like not they happen to be lesbian. Like there is there is it it's less about their identity and more about their relationship. But it's sort of not a surprise. There's nothing that really like sticks out at it. Um it could be it would almost be the the equivalent if you did any other sci fi film and one was male and one was female, like identifying. So that just it brought another it brought that to mind as well. Mm, interesting. I haven't seen that one or even heard of it actually. It's depressing, it's all I can say. <laughs> Unfortunately, I feel that's a bit of a an overused trope in some queer films, where it's it it has it doesn't have happy endings, which I know is a, is a huge point of contention as far as uh, queer cinema goes, is depicting you know relationships or characters who get happy endings. Yeah, it's the barrier gaze trope. Is that if you have a, a the trope has most often been if you have gay characters and they're in a couple that one of them won't make it to the end of the movie or the end of the TV season or something like that. And it's been 
really intensely challenge when it does happen. So it's very similar to the the notion of bridging, where the the female uh, the, the the female character who makes the male lead happy dies or is like is like gone for part of the movie or all of the movie or all of the the show or whatever. Um, and it's 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 increasingly problematic because what it does show is that like either you have the extreme of queer characters ha- has a happy ending and it's amazing, or the other side of it, queer character goes through all these traumas and is, and is alone at the end anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think happens in both lesbian and gay films. Yeah. Um, I think the last two that I kind of want to give a shout out is uh, The Favorite and Booksmart. Booksmart is, is one where... I think they they do a really good job flipping the script on the the teen sex high school comedy sort of thing coming of age story where it's about uh, two young girls about to graduate high school one of them is a lesbian and she kind of has unrequited love for uh, another girl at her school who she believes is a lesbian and spoiler alert if you haven't seen this yet she ends up not she just uh looks a little more um masculine in her uh presenting view she's more of a skateboard tomboy type of girl and so she assumes that she is gay herself when she's not but she ends up meeting a different woman and they end up falling in love which has a really nice happy ending for them uh and then the other one the favorite the yorgos lanthimos movie which i believe most people have probably seen at this point especially if you're a listener to this show uh where it's basically like a a three-way power struggle where you've got um Rachel Weiss and Emma Stone's character vying for favor with uh, the queen played by Olivia Coleman. And so there's a, a really interesting dynamic where you've got the, the three of them sort of trading back and forth barbs and, and how that all will play out. And that's a fun movie. Like in the, in the context of the story, I mean, you could apply it to two women vying for the favor of the king or two men vying for the favor of the queen, but it just, it's so much better just being these three amazing actors going at it as well yeah is there is there any other films you want to briefly mention or do you ready to move on i'm having this is my problem this is all these things i watched through my like undergrad film quote-unquote film phase but i i did because i'm a gay man i gravitated more towards gay gay men films than lesbian films um and it it tended to be really interesting to see how at least in maybe TV or miniseries, how sort of the, the lesbian characters were sort of cast, like you're saying in this movie Booksmart, which I have not seen, of sort of like, here is the stereotype or it's the complete opposite, but there's no kind of middle ground of like what anyone might might determine the Hollywood version of a regular woman to be as like being quote unquote, that person is lesbian or identifies as queer. So it's kind of a, it's, it is kind of an interesting thing. And I also, I fully attribute my own bias to preferring uh, at that time to seek out films about gay men. Well, then let's uh, move over to that and uh, share some of your knowledge. So what do you do around here? Read books, transcribe music, swim at the river, go out at night. Sounds fun. All right, later. Just watch. This is how we'll say goodbye to us when the time comes. Later. <laughs> Meanwhile, we'll have to put up with him for six long weeks. Oh. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, so I think it was uh, a lot more of the most recent, the more recent stuff sticks out. Call Me By Your Name is great, although it made me really sad, but just for personal reasons. Um, it's still a, a wonderful film. And I think it's just a wonderful, like, a bit more 
obviously not realistic, but a bit more kind of telling of the real experience where it's sort of not, not really tragic, but of course it is. Um, and then of course there's, uh, there's Brokeback Mountain, which was the most complicated movie experience. I think I was out at the time when it came out. So I got to see it knowing what it is, but I still, even to this day, having seen it now a couple of times, I'm not really sure what was going on because it didn't seem like the characters knew what was going on. Then all of a sudden Anne Hathaway is topless and then people are angry. It was just a very interesting, like it seemed Brokeback Mountain um, very much seemed like that movie where it was like, Hey guys, go be gay. You'll win Oscars. That's how this works. I'm not saying that's what it was, but it very much seemed like that was what Hollywood was kind of pushing for. Whereas with Moonlight, it was like, here's a great story. Um, and like, here's, here's just the story. And then you have things more like milk, which is very much like, here's, here's the, the ultra white queer history. Um, and Philadelphia is kind of a similar type of thing. So they're, they're all over the place. Um, but I would say my own private had, I don't know, was probably the first kind of like, Oh, okay. Like this is, this is interesting. Um, now I have a habit of, I pretty much always check what, what a celebrity's Wikipedia page says in, in personal life, regardless of sexual orientation or whatever. I'm just really curious. So whenever somebody plays something that is not what they represent, and I'm always, I'm always really interested to see kind of what the difference is. So I feel like if Wikipedia was kind of a big thing around my own private Idaho, um, I probably would have like rushed online to be like, um, oh, is Keanu Reeves is River Phoenix? Like, I want to know about all these, all these people in real life real life too um so i think I, I think the biggest thing is though like it's mostly white people most of the movies i've seen i think just by the nature of what i've thought out but also what i've been able to have access to has been mostly white people and th- those are the stories that are centered um which is very slowly changing um so that's that's definitely problematic that's that's also more of a hollywood problem as a whole though Absolutely. It's definitely a Hollywood problem. I think it's sort of like, I was actually talking about this with my husband about Love, Simon of like, it was Love, Simon only came out a couple years ago. And it was a huge deal because it really was the first, like, not blockbuster, but big Hollywood teen, teen comedy rom-com thing that was about that was centering on a, on a gay male. But the, the main character, of course, is a is a, a pretty typical white cis guy. There are definitely like there's there's queer characters of color in the movie, and that's not a spoiler. But um, it, it I, I agree, it's a bit of a Hollywood problem that they're not going to rush to go front. I mean, look at look at Marvel that pulled out any reference to to Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie character being queer in the last Thor movie, and then now being like, oh, okay, cool, we'll make we're gonna we're gonna fix that in the next Thor movie, and same thing with with making like um, the female version of Thor in the next movie a bit more queer, which is aligned with the comics too. So yeah, it's just, a, it's just, this is me just going on, but it's, it, it was, it's been an interesting increase in awareness over time. I, I, I agree. Like, you know, going back to the color statement, it's, it's no different than the fact that like, you know, look at the Oscars last year, the only uh, actor of color who was nominated for an Oscar was Cynthia Revo because she was in a slave movie where it's sort of the same thing where unless you're in sort of this prestige Oscar Beatty type movie, you're not really going to get the the funding, which means that you're probably not getting the audience of wider stories of, of people, people of color, which affects both heterosexual stories and queer stories as well. It's, it's across the spectrum, unfortunately. 
Yeah, it is. And then I think that's, that's where, like, we're starting with, with what we would call lesbian and gay film, but we're going to get into more trans and queer film. But that's also the distinction of Hollywood being afraid of being like, no, this is a gay, like capital G gay film. We're not going to really touch on too many other things because they think people just can't accept that. Um, and I think that that's what happens in a lot of things. Is, and that's a, that's, yeah, it's a representation problem, but it's also, I think it also becomes an access problem too, of like what, what gets made, what can people see? Yeah, it's going to come up a little bit later when, when we get to the, the Q plus section of, of this, where I really struggled because unless you sort of neatly fit into the lesbian or gay or the very rarely transgender uh, spectrum, you're, a movie is not really being made or told about those experiences. So I think, especially for you know public's understanding of what it means to not be heterosexual, is is so skewed because there isn't the types of media to be able to depict these stories. Where you know, especially you, you look at maybe the seventies, the eighties even through the 90s, where people were still kind of understanding what it means to just be gay. You look at the media and, and films is very specifically targeted uh, to kind of tell a story. You know, you look at something like uh, Midnight Cowboy or Philadelphia, uh, movies like that, where it's very clear what the story is that they're trying to say and they can't deviate from what the spectrum is at all it's just these are two men they're in love with each other they have sex with each other this is all that we are going to be able to tell and so it took a long time i feel for the general populace especially people that are a little more regressive in their values to understand and comprehend what that means and now we're at the point where there's just nothing else really out there you know i it was a real struggle to even find films that cover bisexuality. Yeah, and to and to to specifically name it too, which is a challenge. And I think the other thing I just also want to say is kind of a broader issue is that with the increase in more films about like centering gay and lesbian narratives, there's also those stories of um, a lot of documentaries, that's for sure, but also a lot of those stories of like I used to be gay, but I'm not, um, or the really and there's there's a whole set of the really intense conversion therapy movies, which are some important stories to tell, but again, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to see this. I don't really know who this is for. Um, it, and it's not to say like a story of like, there was one a couple years ago, the name of which escapes me, but um, the, like, it's not about it being successful and this person no longer being gay, but it, it's just like, these are, these are definitely things, stories to tell, but they're also like the tragedy angle is a little heavy uh, really often. There's one I remember from years ago that was basically just about a gay couple um, and the, the, one of the guys dies and the other guy basically wants to like arrange his funeral and do all the stuff, but the family's like, no way. Like you're not actually, you weren't actually part of his life, this whole thing. And it's like, there's multiple movies and documentary with that exact same storyline, which does not exist in hetero cinema. And it's just like, ugh, ugh, too much of this. <laughs> like, I, I think that's what at least something like Love Simon is moving in the right direction of like, they're not super tragic, like Brokeback Mountain or even in a way Moonlight has tragedy and hope too. Um, but like even the ones from 10 years ago, like weekend and yeah, I won't go into all that. There's just, I think that there's, there's a leveraging of tragedy that's a little intense where, whereas some of the bi pan films don't do quite as much of, and even some, well, no, it's just the true, it's the same for trans films. We'll get there. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a movie that you're thinking of is Boy Erased, the Lucas Hedges one. That's the one. Yeah, I didn't see that one, but uh, I remember when it came out, it only got so-so reviews, so I ended up skipping it. Oh, I, I will say it's a bad movie. I thought the performances were really, really great. I just didn't want to see it. Yeah. But I did. I like I watched it anyway. I think uh, a movie that I think was was terrific was Beginners. Did you see that one? Is that the Christopher Plummer yes. one? I didn't, but I wanted to. That's because I like Christopher Plummer and Ewan McGregor. So yeah. So for anyone that isn't familiar about this, um, Christopher Plummer plays a a man who uh, I don't know if he was widowed or he was long divorced or something like that. But in his seventies or eighties, he decides to come out as gay. He finally is able to understand and comprehend his sexuality, and he comes out to his now grown up son, Ewan McGregor. And so it's about the journey that the two of them have to go on to kind of understand each other. And not long after he comes out, he actually ends up dying. I think the catalyst of him coming out was understanding that he didn't have much time left. Um, so it's the story is kind of told in two parts of uh, Ewan McGregor dealing with the aftermath and learning who his father really was, and then Christopher Plummer coming into his own. And it's just such a, a joyful expression of watching to see what someone who is finally able to live their true self is able to experience. And in Christopher Plummer, this character is old enough to know what it was like uh, to know people that maybe came out at a much earlier age when, when he was younger himself. And maybe that's why he either suppressed it or, or felt like he wasn't actually gay because he couldn't deal with the aftermath and the fallout that might've followed with that. Um, and, and gain to experience coming out at a, you know, in the 2000s, I can't remember when this movie came out, the late 2000s, in a way that uh, not to not to minimize you or anyone else around your age, but I, I would have to assume that coming out today as a young person is probably much easier than it was even 15, 20 years ago. And, and so gain to see that sort of joy of someone who's able to come out and be like, Hey, and no one finds this to be a problem. Really? Wow. I can just live my life and be happy. This is fantastic. And that's the, the idea behind Shift Creek. <laughs> um, and, but, but that's the truth is that it, it, it was, it was still difficult for me, but I have, I had then and continue to have access to a lot more privilege that a lot of folks, especially people of color who might be, be LGBTQ plus, um, that, they they face increased challenges coming out now, which were worse in the past and are only slightly getting better. Every community is going to be different. Every family is different. There are still tens of thousands of kids kicked out of their homes just in North America uh, for, for coming out to their parents as, as basically anything in the, what their parents have this idea that they're supposed to be. Um, and so, but yes, it is. I think there's ways that it's easier. And there's also like, there was a film about Christopher Isherwood um, it was a BBC film, maybe 10 years ago, maybe less. Um, Christopher and his kind and sort of showing, uh, Germany before and after, uh, the second world war and before there was a very, very strong in Berlin and a lot of the major cities there were very strong kind of underground, but sort of everyone knew about it. Gay and queer scene, which immediately dissipa- dissipated as the, the Nazis kind of came to power. And then Christopher comes back to Berlin and no one wants, no one wants to have anything to do with him. Um, and he wrote, 
all of his books are escaping me. But Matt Smith was in it, and he did a great job. Um, but again, that was sort of like that was just sort of this is this is what history is. This is what it's been like. And now we're seeing more and more of that. We're seeing more of that in film and television now, showing stories of not not just white people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we we mentioned off the top the Bird Cage, which I rewatched it a couple of years ago, and it is a, a deeply problematic film as far as the caricatures uh that that movie that movie espouses but you know this is a movie that was made in the early 90s and was able to make gay men in the gay community uh seem so harmless because for the most part in media being gay was depicted as this sort of evil sin and that, you know, you were, you caught the gay basically and watching this movie where it's about this conservative family that has, that goes and visits her, their daughter's fiance's family. And the fiance has two fathers and one of them has to dress up in drag to pretend to be his mother. Um, and and it's, it's very problematic in a lot of the, the depictions, but it's just so, harmless in a lot of other ways to sort of normalize this idea of gay families and the fact that they could raise children to be the fine upstanding people that the so-called conservative bigots were able to uh like and respect which is i i have to imagine probably did some good for the community despite the fact that a lot of it can be really iffy in parts especially the language yeah and that that also is the the um Parts of it also is that there, there's a lot of a lot of uh, North American LGBTQ plus and primarily gay elders are gone because of AIDS, but there's still sort of the there were probably maybe a bunch of white queer folks who liked it, and then non-white folks who didn't, and there, there's that sort of and there's still some of that in the community for sure. The 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 issues between I mean there's there's still issues where. Uh, lesbian and gay folks have problems with with uh, accepting the reality of bi and pan um, orientations. I'm not saying that that's widespread, but it it does exist. Um, so yeah, it is. It's it's. I mean, it's good. It kind of stands alone as kind of a a a a a, a character on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess let's maybe talk about some other movies. Really, like I I'm a huge fan of Tom Ford's movie A Single Man. Was that one you've seen before? I have, and that was written, the book was written by Christopher Isherwood. I just had to look it up to remember. Uh, okay. I, I liked it. It, it was, it, I thought it was, it was good. It sort of follows a similar track to a lot of the other, those other types of films. It does. Yes. And it's, it's very sad and depressing through most of it. Um, but it's, it's a very beautiful film and a great performance And Tom Ford. Yes. Like the designer, Tom Ford directed this and it's, he did a, a fantastic job for it being his debut film. And then some, you know, other ones I really like from last year, Pain and Glory, the Pedro Almodovar film that starred Antonio Banderas. I thought that was a, a really beautiful film. Uh, you talked briefly about Moonlight earlier. That's one I really love, and I'm so happy that it, it won Best Picture. It was sort of the, the little movie that could, that it was about not only a gay relationship, but also people of color as well. And it's just such an anomaly for what normally uh, constitutes prestige films. Lorraine Broughton, expert in intelligence collection and hand-to-hand combat. Agent Gascoigne was killed last night. Did you know him? Enough to say hello. 
now moving on, uh, we will cover some some bisexual films. This this like I said earlier, it was it was a little difficult to sort of find these instances. I'm sure if I want to go deeper into the rabbit hole, especially in, in classic old Hollywood, there probably would be more coded references to bisexuality. But as far as movies that are, are very uh, out and clear of it. Uh, I watched in preparation for this episode, Itu Mama Tambien, which I know is one that you've seen as well. And I really enjoyed it. You know, it's the, the actual bisexuality doesn't really occur until almost the very end of the movie, but there are questions about if the two boys might be gay themselves or, or bisexual, things like that. They, they really are sort of encompassing the, the whole spectrum. Yeah, and I think that's that's what's pretty par for the course. I think up until the last maybe ten years of of films where you'd have characters whose sexuality is more ambiguous, which could be explicitly bi or explicitly pan, or maybe isn't, or it's a big part of their character. I think it, it's kind of funny that Itu Mama Tambien was my introduction to Alfonso Cuarón because I knew that scene was coming, and then after after I saw the movie, I was like that was a great movie. I love this guy, and then watched all of his movies a million times. Um, and that's, it, it was an interesting kind of way in to that, that context. Um, but I think that what happens in a lot of the films is it sort of, it just, it just either is there and it's not really talked about, um, or it's, or it's a bit more explicit and you sort of just, just like, oh, all these characters are sort of just doing, they're just going to do whatever, whatever they want. Um. Another instance that I actually consider kind of similar to Itamama Tambien is This Movie is Broken, which was the very strange, um, it's a concert film, a broken social scene, but it also has a, a thin narrative. Have you seen it? I have, yeah. I actually watched it several years ago. I had, I knew nothing about it other than the fact that it was a broken social scene movie and my library across the street from my house had it. So I was like, oh yeah, I'll check this out. And so I was very surprised when I actually like started watching that it wasn't just a concert movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was a very, it, it was just, and it was a surprise to see it for the first time with my brother in the movie theater. Um, and then all of a sudden there's this very explicit um, homo homoerotic scene of sorts, but it, it's also like, it's it's made, it's not made explicitly clear about anything. Like one character has a girlfriend. So are they poly? Are they pan? Are they bi? Whatever. Um, it seems more often that a movie sort of has that kind of, this just happens and let's move on with let's move on with the story let's move on with our lives i guess it usually seems to be like um due to substance use where oh we got drunk and fooled around or oh we were stoned and next thing you know we were both naked sort of thing which i hate but because that sort of takes away the like in a lot of literature, what usually happen is that scene will happen, but one of the characters is into the other one. The other one is like, oh, I'm not actually gay or whatever. Um, and then it's the whole book of them not talking to each other. And at the end, they get together because I read a lot, a lot of young adult fiction. But anyway, um, it, a, a, I think a better instance of it would have been Cabaret because it was basically like a film made by almost exclusively queer people primarily. Um, and, and it sort of is just like, this is the reality of these characters, of some of these characters. And that's just, that's just what it is. <laughs> and yeah. by the way, that's also loosely based on a Christopher Isherwood book as well. Now that I'm reading about it. 
Interesting. I, yeah, I've seen that. It's been a few years. I have it on my list, but like, I, I really can't remember specific instances in that movie, uh, other than the fact that um, sort of similar to to something like Rocky Horror Picture Show, where it's just like, and everything goes. Yeah, which I think was meant to be a representation of of a certain time and place, but again who got access to those spaces? Well, at a certain time, maybe it was only white people or maybe it was only a certain certain look or identity. I think um, there's another film that is, I call it broadly queer, but it's in many ways, it's not Victor Victoria. Have you seen that one? No, I have not. That's the, the Julie Andrews movie, right? Yes, Julie Andrews movie she made with her husband. Um, another extraordinarily uh, kind of queer film, but it's really just about her um, dressing in drag the whole time but still falling in love with a man and the man being like, Oh my God, do I like this person? But it's a man. I can't possibly like a man. Oh, thank God it's a woman, which I'm just like, ugh. but it was the early eighties. So to a certain extent, I'm like, okay, this is what they kind of had to do um, in order for this movie to, to work. And then that same trope of the, the kind of drag or even trans thing, which we'll talk about more later, just kept coming up. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call that a buy movie necessarily. I think that there were a bit more on the, the focus of, of a couple of these other movies. Mm-hmm. I did just before recording today, I, I watched Atomic Blonde, which is a Charlize Theron action film where she, uh, it is hinted that she previously was in relationship with a man. And then during the movie, uh, she, she has sex with a woman several times, the same woman, and clearly has strong feelings for her. And so it's kind of considered a, a bisexual action film uh, based on the, the, the main character for that. So that's really interesting that they were able to have such a mainstream depiction. I, I agree. And I think that brings up a topic we haven't really talked about is that a lot of the time, um, a lot of the time queer characters are portrayed by non-queer actors. Which I don't think is the worst thing, but now we're in a time when there are a lot more out openly queer and trans actors out there who sh- who should maybe have access to some of these roles too. Um, not that I really have a problem with Charlize Theron. Like it, it's true. Like it's 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 a point where there can now be a blockbuster that has this character that is bisexual, and it's going to be part of the story, and almost going to not be as well. It's sort of like just if th- there had been a lot of talk about Daniel Craig leaving James Bond and basically just replacing making the next bond a woman, but not changing anything else. So keeping all the behaviors the same, always keeping the bond girl, quote unquote, and just sort of being like, Oh, it's not about the fact that maybe this character is a lesbian. It's just, this is still like a, a horrible womanizing person who's really cool at jumping off of buildings and stuff like that too. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that it's moving in the right direction that way. And I think that there are, there's more instances of the, the clearly, or at least not unambiguous um, buyer pan character or lead. Yeah, and we've talked about the, the the James Bond thing before. I don't know if it's on the show or just in, in person. Uh, and in fact, frankly, that would be terrific in my opinion. I and it basically almost gives way to the idea of um, instead of it just being queer people being depicted in either super depressing movies or, or things like that where they're overcoming struggle or just their coming out stories. Uh, queer people can also have the the really crappy uh, action movies where it's just explosions and you know every other nonsense of of trope that different genres have. The only difference is the gender or sexuality of the person that's playing the character. Yeah, and it's sort of I think that's 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 a challenge I think I've seen 
way better overcome in, in literature, but that's also because I read a lot of um, genre literature um, that is, it's just sort of like, you don't even realize the whole time that this really kick-ass lead character happens to also be queer or something like that as well. And there's, I mean, we could do a whole podcast. I'm sure there's thousands out there that talk just about the, the queerness of characters in, in genre literature, but it hasn't broken into genre film in the same way, mm-hmm. um, which would be interesting to see how kind of future films address that, even if they're superhero movies, like you've said as well. And I think that there's a role, I mean, bisexuality and pansexuality and omnisexuality exist just like asexuality and any other uh, sexual orientation exists. And there's a role for it to be, for there to be characters that, that live their lives that way, not to be centered, but still make it clear that that's the case. And now we will uh, discuss some trans films. As, as far as like the first one I can remember watching is uh, Dog Day Afternoon, the Al Pacino movie from, from the 70s, where he is robbing a bank. And halfway through the movie, we learn that he's robbing the bank because he is uh, trying to pay for the gender reassignment surgery for his uh, male partner. And so that's really interesting. This, you know, Al Pacino being such a huge star starring in a movie like this, which probably if I were to revisit it, isn't the most delicate of movies, but it, this was still a mainstream film at the time. And they depicted both, uh, what was at first a gay relationship, but then also a transgender relationship where you have someone who is wanting to go through gender reassignment surgery and having a partner that is so committed to being there for them that they are willing to risk everything and put their lives on the line for it. Um, and believe it or not, it's, it's not a, it's a movie I have not seen. It's it's an interesting one. Like it's it's basically just like a bank heist movie where you know you got the cop outside being like, "I'm here to negotiate with you. Make sure you don't harm any of the uh, people you have as hostages." Things like that. That's basically the gist of the movie. Um, but it's it's just very interesting where where it kind of takes the twist probably about halfway three quarters of the way where you you actually learn what the motivations are for this character and they do it in a way that is just so matter of factly uh and basically everyone accepts it at face value and there as far as i can recall isn't done in a derogatory way right yeah i think it's interesting though because it's it's even more so than than sexual orientation gender identity is almost always portrayed um a lot it's a lot better more recently, but only very recently is almost always portrayed by cis folks as well. Like, um, I think my earliest instant, my earliest, uh, kind of coming across a trans, a trans character from my understanding was in Ace Ventura, which is horribly transphobic. Um, and, and makes it the butt of the joke at the end of the, the, the film. And that's, that's just like, Oh, geez. But I, at the same, like, I, I don't think anyone saw the movie. It's like, oh, I see myself in there. Oh, crap. This is what the joke is. This is what the point is. But there, there have been, I think, improvements. I think the Danish girl is an interesting standout. Um, but again, another instance of, of very much a, a cis actor and kind, kind of like, I, it's, it's a challenge. It's hard to get, it, it's hard to, to, it, there may not be, uh, trans actors out there who want to, to show, maybe a version like a, a character, but a version of what they may have been um, as a different, as a different gender identity, for instance. So there's definitely challenges, but the one big one I do want to talk about is, um, is not an explicitly trans film, but it's very much coded as it, it's the matrix. Mm. Um, and I've been learning about this over the last year is that the, the Wachowskis have looked back 
and been like, oh yeah, like we, we, whether they knew it explicitly or not, because they, they made it before they, they both separately at different times transitioned. Um, it's very much about a, about a character who the there's all these systems are in place to basically say you are not that this person like you no, you you're you're a battery you're not uh you're not this person this this kind of hero that you think you are i know things got kind of lost the plot in the sequels a little bit but it really is about it really is about uh kind of someone being reborn in a way um abandoning their dead name and moving on to kind of who they who they really are yes it's sort of a man and then a man again. Um, but it, it is very much, there, there's been quite a lot written about it. And I'll, I'll remember to send you a link to something that you can link in the show notes. Um, specifically, one of the great things I read about Matrix, the Matrix being a trans film. Yeah. And then, of course, there's uh, one of the characters in the, the first film named Switch, which was given that name because originally in the script and the real world, it was going to be portrayed by a woman, and then in the Matrix, it was going to be portrayed by a man, or vice versa. I can't remember exactly what it was, um, but the studio wouldn't allow it, so they just ended up casting a woman. She kind of has like the, I believe if I remember correctly, like the the short blonde spiky hair. She's kind of like the the hacker of the group. We're like, oh, we're in. Yeah. So they they sort of rewrote it a little bit to switch being uh, a, a techie name, uh, but in reality, she was named that way because she was transgendered. But this is like twenty. This is twenty years ago, so they had to. They they literally did have to dance around how they did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you mentioned the Danish girl. There's also a movie like Trans America, which starred Felicity Huffman as uh, as the lead, uh, who's who's playing a trans woman. But um, one that came out a few years ago that I was a big fan of is uh, Tangerine. I got some good news to tell you about me and Chester. I know what it is. You're breaking up with him. Thank God. I'm going to be cheating on you like that. Wait, 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 what? You, you didn't know? Mm. White boy. Who is she? Her name starts with a D. Danny. Desiree. Destiny? You're making me lose my game. She's some white fish. Chester and she know me with real fish. Yeah, bitch, like a real fish. Girl, like vagina and everything. Which actually starred uh, two trans women and multiple others. Uh, they we're unfortunately playing prostitutes, but uh, it's basically one of them was on the lookout for her boyfriend slash pimp. And it's sort of like, um, uh, not like a road trip because it's just going across the city, but basically it follows that sort of journey format where you're starting in one place and you're trying to find a character at the end of it. And Sean Baker, who directed it, his follow-up film was The Florida Project, so he's definitely someone that's grown in stature, and hopefully more people have checked out Tangerine since um, The Florida Project ended up coming out. I remember when it came out, the the big hook for it was, this movie was shot on an iPhone. I I think I remember that, too. I actually never got a chance to see it, but it's not a surprise that you have a smaller film that sort of got a lot of talk that the smaller film was the one that had the trans actors um, portraying trans people in it, Um, which I know that there is more of a push to do, but I mean, it took Hollywood decades to get people of color to play people of color. So (laughs) hopefully it doesn't take as long. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. And I think TV probably does a bit of a better job with that. You look at something like orange, the new black, um, which um, I've, Blanking on her name, who uh, who starred and who was one of the actors in that at show, uh, who ended up has done a couple different things. She ended up being in the the 
TV made for TV version of Rocky Horror a few years ago. Um, right, Laverne Cox. Laverne yeah. Cox, that's it. Yeah. So for a couple of years, it sort of seemed like she was like really on the rise and was the next hot thing, and then it sort of the the buzz sort of fizzled out about her a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think she's still kind of out there doing. The, the, the truth is there's more folks who are kind of making it in, in the TV world. Pose is a great example of that as like film, a, a show that is pretty much starring written by often directed by trans uh, and gender nonconforming gender queer folks. And, but, but it, it's an interesting thing because it's sort of like, it is about the queer community. It's about trans and gender nonconforming gender queer folk where there's not really the crossover of like, you don't really have an episode of the flash directed by a trans person. Um, or maybe it is and we don't know about it, but it's, it's not really the like quote unquote regular TV or other TV. Whereas I, in my mind poses better than half the stuff that's on more than half the stuff that's on TV these days, even in the world of, of peak TV, but it's not crossed over into the world of film in the same way yet. Mm-hmm. And now I don't know if that's maybe because you have more creative people being given more freedom in television. That's probably why they're, they're using that as a medium or the ability to maybe tell a more complicated story over a longer period of time. Whereas often, you know, movies, you've got your 90 minutes to two hours where you have to tell an entire story and it doesn't always leave room for nuance as well as maybe a TV show can, because you can show a character one way and then maybe have some realizations about themselves or their identity and slowly grow and change into the person who they ultimately become. And that works a bit better on TV. You also have shows like Transparent, which is uh, written by a woman who was recalling her experiences of her father becoming uh, a a trans woman. If you want to talk about nuance, let me tell you about this film Suicide Squad. (laughs) I'm going to mute your microphone right now. (laughs) No, but it's an interesting thing that you said that because a lot of big blockbuster films had horrible character development. Justice League is a good example of that, that Zack Snyder basically needs to re-edit and re-visual effects most of it to turn into what will probably be a six to eight hour miniseries um, on HBO instead of what was originally seen. Now, granted, that was a, a big blockbuster and people could talk at length about queerness for Wonder Woman and for different characters in, in DC films but and DC stories. But I think that what's interesting is that it's sort of, the the money will go to what will be the safest bet to make money. And I totally get that. But I think that there there's been little inches here and there to at least move in better directions. And I think what we need to see for that is um, a lot of a lot of more mainstream trans films, uh, again, primarily white people. So there there's going to be more, hopefully more pushes. I think a fantastic woman is great because it wasn't a it's, it's not even American, an American film. So there's, that kind of broke out into the film world. It did get, did it get a, uh, uh, foreign yes, feature it nomination? Won, it, it won that year. It won. Okay. So it shows how good my memory is, but, um, yeah. So, so at least it, there's that movement as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I believe it's from, from Chile. And it's a, it's a film I finally got to see, um, last year. I didn't see it during the, the whirlwind of trying to see everything before the Oscars that year. Um, and I, I, I actually thought it was, it was well done. Yeah, that's one I've been meaning to catch up as well. Um, you know, I, I made a huge list of, of movies that I want to watch before recording this, and I and I only got through I think about six or seven of them, and I had a list of probably about forty. <laughs> and uh, it, it's a it's a lot to 
it's a lot of film to watch. And because tragedy is so front and center in a lot of these films, it can be hard to watch a lot of them. It can be, which is, you know, why I decided to watch Atomic Blonde today, because I was really debating what I wanted to do. And, you know, last night I watched Brokeback Mountain for the first time. And that was such a, a moving experience for me. And by the end of it, of not to spoil too much about what this movie's 15 years old, by the time we learn of Jack's death, like I was just in full on tears and, you know, so heartbroken. And like today I was looking at my list of movies. I'm like, Oh, I, I really don't want to be like crying in the middle of the day again. So I went with something a little more uh, lighter on the scale. Welcome to queer fatigue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I think is, is, is can both be the name for the tragedy that's so front and center in these, in these types of stories, but also for the, the effort made to try and seek, seek out, like I'll actively choose to watch certain things because I know that there is a queer aspect to the narrative because that's something I want to see. I actively am pushing for. Um, I don't know if queer fatigue can be applied to that. It's more to the tragedy part of it for sure. Yeah. It's just sometimes you like need to like psych yourself up for certain movies or you'll watch them once and be like, wow, that was amazing. I love that movie. I am never watching it again. Yep. And that I, I haven't to this day, I haven't seen Call Me By Your Name again because I loved it but it just broke me for some reason. So I'm just like, not going to bother with this. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. That's one that I I loved as well, and I don't know if I'll be able to go back to it either. Uh, and then lastly, we'll, we'll kind of wrap things up a little bit with, with Queer Plus films, which, as we talked about earlier, is a bit trickier, mostly because when making a movie, they try to only have one sort of uh sexuality on display at a time and anything that was either non-binary or you know blurred the lines just was sort of off limits so you know i mentioned rocky horror because it's it's sort of it's a combination of bisexual and transgendered although he calls himself a transvestite which you know we 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 know is very antiquated language and, and not correct or helpful in any way but that's the way the character speaks and, and defines themselves. Um, other than that, you know, I look at maybe movies that have of multiple people in it across the spectrum of sexuality. So something like, can you ever forgive me? Which starred uh, Melissa McCarthy, who is a lesbian writer. And then, um, Oh, I can't remember the guy's name in it. Um, who, who is a gay man. So it's really about the two of them as having a friendship together and both of them having romantic endeavors with someone of, of the same sex. Other than that, like I, I really sort of struggled uh, to find movies that I would consider as queer films as a whole, maybe something like, but I'm a cheerleader, which uh, is about both lesbian and, and gay young people. And I think there's also a role for films that kind of don't fit into the the initialism like there's 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 a very limited film films out there with two spirit characters there's not a lot of films out there with with ace asexual or non-binary characters or a romantic characters where that again more of that is happening in television because it's, it's like you said it's possible to put in a character who heaven forbid is not the lead of the, the show but is a side character that people can like and have these these defining attributes to them obviously not their whole identity. I think it is true in film. It's a bit more difficult to do where, yeah, a queer film then ends up, ends up just being top to bottom queer with just queerness all, all up in it. Um, you added to a list earlier, but uh, Priscilla Queen of the Desert, it's, it's a quintessential drag film, 
But I would also point to Paris is Burning, which was a documentary from 30 years ago, which kind of showed the ball culture in New York, um, which is the, the, the premise of Pose and now the premise of a new reality competition show that's the same kind of thing. And that's just sort of, it's, it's basically just all of this otherness, this queerness in, in New York came together to celebrate themselves. Um, and if you haven't, if anyone, if no one's seen Paris is Burning, it's just, a, it's an incredible film to watch and you can see so much of how drag culture and mainstream queer culture has, has, has to, to basically to give to that film and also to that, that sub community on the East Coast that really kind of branched out through RuPaul and through a lot of other kind of manifestations of queerness. Priscilla even is, is almost an extension of that in a way too. Um, where that, like Paris is Burning, and I think there's a lot more documentaries that would fit, fill, fit under this category that short, sort of point at a specific person, group of people story. Um, so, how these sorts of things came together. You have space to do all that you intend to. This movie is about the ball circuit, a competition among gay people under one roof. It's like crossing into the looking glass. How their families, kids with broken homes or no home at all. My name is Angie Extravaganza, and I am the mother of the House of Extravaganza. I'm Willie Ninja, the mother of the House of Ninja. Ninjas hit hard, they hit fast. We come out to assassinate. I am Pepper LaBeja, the legendary mother of the House of LaBeja, and I've been around for two decades. Raining, that is. Yeah, I, I believe I came across that in doing my research, but I was trying to focus on more narrative films, so I, I didn't add any documentaries to my list. Don't be surprised if there's a film, like a, like a, a drama version of it made one day. Now that it's, it's a little bit more in the public eye, I wouldn't be surprised if it could happen. Or I, I guess the film Pride is a good, is a good example where I believe there was a documentary made of it, but then they just, but then there was a movie, which was pretty entertaining. Um, I would call it mostly still a gay movie, but there was more generally queer characters as well. Is this the British film? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I have, I had that on my list of things to see. (laughs) I guess maybe a question I have for you is there's also films that are maybe sometimes directed towards the queer community that don't necessarily depict queer people. Uh, Sort of like, uh, I guess a better way to, to, to word it would be something like gay icon type of, of films. Um, you know, something like the Liza Minnelli variety, Judy Garland varieties, you know, the, the friends of Dorothy sort of coded ways of looking at, at film. Is there anything that you maybe want to touch on that don't quite encompass queer relationships or people, but are definitely queer positive films? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, Judy is very much like the the film from last. Is that last year? Yes. Who was. knows what year? Renee Zellweger just won Best Actress. Yes, thank you. Well, the Oscars feel both like three months ago and ten years. So, um, Judy is very much a like it's it's another one of those films. My husband and I said the first time we saw it, like this is a film made by people who many of them probably queer, many of them who have idolized Judy in the kind of gay icon she's always been. And the film very much shows what's a mostly realistic portrayal of her towards the end of her life where she was, she, she got it. Her, her, her gay fans were one of the reasons that she was still selling out theaters and, and, and doing these kinds of shows, especially as the plot. There's a, there's a plot element about that too that really touches on her being like, I don't really understand it, but I'll be here for you anyway. And I think that there's a, there's a handful of those kinds of films where it's sort of just like, I, like, I think what's interesting is seeing Rocket Man 
and Bohemian Rhapsody, kind of showing two different sides of like this the this uh, enigmatic queer character uh, and how it's portrayed, um, which is at least better than if you look at the Imitation Game, which sort of just was like it. I like it and I love Benedict Cumberbatch, um, but it it did a really horrible job of kind of being like making it explicit that this character was gay and that not, it wasn't one of those things where it was an important part of his identity. It was very much like he hides it. Nothing happens. That's anything really coded as heavily gay. He has a relationship with a female and then he's persecuted. And like, yes, you feel sad, but it wasn't a very queer positive film. Yeah. That, that was one where it really wasn't until the end when they end up doing the, the chemical castration for him that it's really sort of addressed. Otherwise, it's all kind of subtext through most of the film. Yeah, there's even the moment where he basically tells his, like, essentially girlfriend being like, I can't marry you because I'm gay. And she's like, no, you're not. I can't believe that. And then she gets mad. <laughs> yeah. it was, it, that, was, that was a stereotypical moment of, um, of, I'm going to tell you the emotions that the script told me I have. I am angry. I am disappointed. I'm not going to show this to you. I'm just going to say the words. Which I mean, this is this is a thing that happens in, in film all the time. But um, yeah, I think that there, we're we're getting more and more of those just explicitly queer stories, um, and those stories of, like you said, of the icons and sort of the people that are that are part of the community, whether they're cognizant of it directly or not. Now I know earlier you had mentioned Schitt's Creek, and and this is obviously a movie podcast but i i would be remiss if to not sort of discuss this as well because the relationship um well one dan levy's character david uh does not define his sexuality in the beginning he's in a relationship with stevie who is a woman and then he ends up being in a relationship with um with patrick who is a man uh but he he talks about being in relationships both with men and women doesn't want to define himself by any, by any sort of a label. But the reason why I want to bring it up is because I don't think I've seen any TV show handle a same-sex relationship, especially between two men, in such a frank and honest nature where... You know, I, I look back to, to something like Modern Family. I used to watch it when it first came out. They had to do an entire episode about how the fact that the the, the married gay couple wouldn't kiss in any of the shows because one of the characters um, uh, didn't like public displays of affection. So the entire concept of the episode was that he wouldn't kiss his partner at any point. And then finally, at the very end of the show, at the very end of the episode, they like give each other a little peck. Now these are supposed, this is supposed to be a married couple that have adopted a child. They've been living together forever. They're both clearly very out to everyone in their lives and in the community. And, an ABC show can't show them having an actual, any form of sexual chemistry. And then watching Schitt's Creek and seeing David and Patrick so openly make out with each other, give pecks on the cheek, be both romantic in a silly way and in a more of a sexual nature was just so refreshing where I literally don't think I've seen any other sort of mainstream TV show or movie that wasn't like super art house that with a graphic depiction show such a natural relationship between two male characters. And I think that that's sort of, I mean, like 
in many ways, that was the point. And, and Daniel Levy made that very clear in promoting the final season that that was what they were going for, like showing this world where that's the thing that happens and we're just going to show it. And that's fine. And I think Modern Family is so interesting to me that I remember when that happened, I was excited that there was, I also watched at the beginning, which is believe it or not more than 10 years ago, but um, I was excited that they could have this sort of established gay couple thing because you had queer as folk before and you had these other shows where it was more explicit, but you better be paying for cable if you want that or those specialty channels or you wanted to secretly get the DVD from somebody, which I did um, in high school. But um, the, the the thing about Modern Family is that this is this was more than 20 years after Ellen came out and basically lost her show and all this stuff. It's like in 20 years, not much that had happened and many other sitcoms with a central kind of at least one central gay character couldn't really take off because they were like the conceit of most uh, sitcoms I've realized is that you don't have your lead characters in relationship at the beginning. And then as the show goes on, they either end up together and they can't break up or they end up with people on the side and they just keep having like non lead characters that they'll keep bringing in and out. It's very rare to kind of bring in a lead in most shows over the last 20, 30 years, they don't bring in a lead on the fourth season who's now the character's partner, and they're going to be a regular for the rest of the show. So that's, that's something Schitt's Creek did. I remember my husband and I saying during the, the first season Patrick was on, was like, is this just going to be a thing? Like, is this going to keep happening? And then we saw, oh, he's a series regular now. Okay, good. <laughs> like, we're not going to anticipate tragedy then at this point. Yeah. And, and the fact that they, the, the, the penultimate episode of that show, sorry for anyone who's not seen it, but it it's basically built from the very beginning of the season that it's ending in their marriage. And so it's ending in literally the most happy, healthy way that they can for this. There, there's no despair, breakup, tragedy, things like that. And it's just so normal and seeing everyone come together for that. Like I was in tears that whole episode. Yeah. And I think it, when you compare that to something like the many CW shows, which do have some queer characters, it's, it's sort of like, you can bet if there's a queer relationship at the start of the season, if they're still together at the end, they'll have broken up for four or five episodes because one of them didn't tell some, something to somebody else. Yeah. And that's like a trope that is getting very tired for, for straight relationships as well. And I think it's just sort of like, the funny thing about the CW shows is more than half of CW shows are, um, they're all the brainchild of Greg Berlanti, who is gay. So I'm just sort of like, come on, get it together. <laughs> Well, it's like Ryan Murphy basically having the entire market on on mainstream television as well for for gay shows too. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, he's he's doing a better job of sort of being like, this is a show I want to make. Here's a bunch of awesome queer and trans creators who can do it. Um, instead of me telling that he he created Pose, and it's the same kind of thing where he's like, I'm just the creator. I'm stepping back. Mm-hmm. There's people that I want to actually work on this. Not to sing his praises, but it is one of those things where you need. Sometimes you need people like Greg Berlanti and Ryan Murphy and RuPaul to sort of get it through the door and hopefully make room for new creators as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I feel like we we probably named over 50 different movies, and I feel like that was only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, Sammy, I want to thank you so much for, for sharing your own stories and your experiences and your knowledge as well. Always a pleasure, and I'm glad that I could talk about uh, talk about something that wasn't doom and gloom like the despair of the film industry right now. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for joining me, Sammy, and I'm sure I will have you back shortly. I know we're already talking offline about uh, what the next shows will be like. You can't get rid of me so easily. No, and I don't want to. I only play that I want to get rid of you. <laughs> okay, can you please stop doing that? You're making me nervous. I'm sorry, I've just like... 
been thinking a lot about it, and I think you're right. I know. About what? Like, I think I'm wearing a wedding dress. Oh, I know that. I really wanted to impress you today, and now I feel like I'm ruining your wedding. I think you're giving yourself a lot of credit. My wedding was already ruined. But for what it's worth, I am continuously impressed by you. Now, can you please walk me down the aisle before people lose interest? Hey, David. It would be my honor. Okay. <clears throat> Once again, I'd like to thank Sammy Felchenfeld for joining the show and for sharing his stories. ContraZoom is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. I'd like to thank Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. What are your favorite queer films? Email us at ContraZoomPod at gmail.com and we will share responses on a future episode. It would be a great help if you would rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts as it will help us grow and find new listeners. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 